0: Good evening. <clears throat> My name is Sergio Verdu and uh, on behalf of the Public Lectures Committee of the University, I'd like to welcome everyone, everyone who is here in this room, in the simulcast rooms, and also everyone who is watching on the World Wide Web. So I am delighted uh, to uh, introduce tonight's uh, speaker, who will be uh, uh, speaking under the auspices of the Walter H. Uh, Lectureship on Public and International Affairs. It is indeed truly an honor to introduce uh, Amos Oz. Amos Oz is a master of modern uh, Hebrew prose. He paints an eloquent and often pessimistic picture of Israeli and Palestinian society. Beyond the terrible human drama inherent in this conflict, his work looks at the constraints of ideology geographic boundaries, and historical traditions universal to all societies. Born in Jerusalem shortly before the outbreak of World War II, Amos Oz was educated at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and at Oxford. He served in the Israeli army from 1957 to 1960, and again as a reserve soldier in the Six-Day War, in 1967, and in the Yom Kippur War in 1973. He worked as a school teacher and laborer between 1957 and 1973, and he has held academic positions at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, Colorado College, and since 1986, he is the holder of the Agnon Chair of Hebrew Literature at the Ben-Gurion University of the Negev. And in uh, 1997, he was actually a visiting professor here at Princeton. His works of fiction, such as My Michael, uh, Perfect Peace, Touch the Water, Touch the Wind, are often seen as allegories of contemporary Israel. Amos Oz is also well known for his political essays about the Israeli-Arab conflict Campaigning for a compromise based on the peaceful coexistence between Israel and Palestine. Recently, he was among a group of Israeli and Palestinian politicians, human rights advocates, and intellectuals that, after two years of secret talks, unveiled the so called Geneva Accord, which is a new blueprint for peace in the Middle East. Let us warmly welcome Professor Amosos.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, friends, good evening, shalom, erev tov to all of you. And thank you, Sergio, for this delightful introduction. As far as I'm concerned, the best part of a presentation is for me to stand in the side and listen to the introductions. They are so sweet, I wish they were longer. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I have a minor dream. I want to become one day a former peace activist. I want there to be peace in the Middle East, and I want to be in a position to come to Princeton or elsewhere, talk to you about literature, talk to you about poetry, talk to you about language, talk to you about values, perhaps if I summon the courage, even talk to you about my own work. But as things are, I am here to speak to you tonight about Israel between war and peace, about Israelis and Palestinians, about the crisis in the Middle East. I want you all to bear in mind that all I can offer you is a very personal, individual perspective. I am not a representative of anyone. No Israeli is a genuine representative of any other Israeli because you never get two of us to agree with one another on anything. In fact, it's rather hard to get one Israeli to agree with himself or herself on on anything because everyone has a divided mind and soul on many issues. I think chasing a bunch of fanatics in the mountains of Afghanistan or in the alleyways of Baghdad or Gaza is one thing. Containing and healing fanaticism is completely another. I don't have any particular wisdom about the chase. Other people know more about it than I do. But I may have one or two ideas on how to try to contain and even reduce fanaticism. Personally, I regard myself as a bit of an expert on comparative fanaticism. Having been born and grown up in Jerusalem, which had always been a loading stone for fanatics of every color and faith and ideology and conviction. In fact, when I say comparative fanaticism, I'm not joking. Maybe it's high time that every school... Every university, every college starts at least a couple of courses in comparative fanaticism because it is all over us. I don't just mean the obvious form of fanaticism, you know, people who are shaking their fists and screaming in love, strange languages across the television screens from ourselves. I think fanaticism is ancient and comprehensive, older than Islam. Older than Christianity, older than Judaism, older than any faith or ideology. It might be in potential presence in every human being. It might be a bad gene. It's everywhere, perhaps in its milder forms. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. The anti-smokers who will burn you alive for lighting a cigarette anywhere near them. The vegetarians who will eat you alive for eating meat. Even the pacifists, some of my dear colleagues in the Israeli peace movement, who will shoot me right through the head just because I have a slightly different strategy on how to make peace with the Palestinians. I think there is a certain connection between fanaticism and despair, between fanaticism and hopelessness, and also between fanaticism and becoming 100% public. I maintain that the fanatic is a very altruistic person. He or she is always more interested in you than in himself, because the fanatic has a very little self or no self at all. He is always in the business of saving your soul for you. He's always busy changing your uh, eating habits, or your drinking habits, or your voting habits. He loves you. He always falls on your neck. Then he might get at your throat in case you prove to be unredeemable. And topographically, falling on your neck and getting at your throat are just about the same. So I think a great deal about the various forms of fanaticism. I also think often on how catchy fanaticism is. How easy it is to become an anti-fanatic fanatic, fanatic, an anti-fundamentalist zealot, an anti-jihad crusader. One of the ways to deal with a state of widespread despair is to try to generate an agenda which may inject some hope hope, not in the psyches of the fanatics but precisely in the hearts of the moderates. The moderates do exist almost everywhere. Although we don't hear enough of them, And we virtually don't get to see them because what we get to see on the screens of our televisions are always the incited, hysterical mobs in the streets. We never get to see the larger number of peoples who at the same time, while the rally or the demonstration or the riot is taking place in the streets and in view of the cameras, the larger number of people who are sitting at home eating their fingernails. We don't get to see them because they are not in the streets. We don't get to see them and we forget that they exist. And they exist everywhere. They exist even in places where we think there is no one left but the fanatics. And it's those people who hold the key to the question would fanaticism and extremism be contained, yes or not. If they lose hope If they lose some perspective for the future, then fanaticism and extremism will prevail. If they have hope, they may contain fanaticism. I have always maintained, contrary to some common wisdoms, that the only power which can contain fanatic Islam is moderate Islam. The only power which can contain extremist nationalism in the Middle East is moderate nationalism in the Middle East. How do we generate enough hope in the moderates to make them go out into the streets and make themselves as visible, as present, as prominent as the fanatics? This, I think, is what we should worry about. Not so much on how to change the minds and hearts of the fanatics, but how to contain them, how to isolate them. Personally, I think I can even cure a fanatic. If you promise to take the following with a big grain of salt, I will tell you that I think the remedy is sense of humor. I have never seen a fanatic with a sense of humor, nor have I ever seen a person with a sense of humor turning fanatic except when he or she lost the sense of humor, which happens. So if I could only condense sense of humor into capsules and persuade entire populations to swallow my humor capsules, I may one day qualify for a Nobel Prize not in literature but in medicine. <laughs> but look at me. The very idea of condensing... Compressing sense of humor into capsules, making other people swallow my humor pills for their own good because I am worried about them, is in itself contaminated. It's very catchy. You may catch it while trying to contain it. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the privilege, as Sergio mentioned in his introduction, to be one of a group of Israeli citizens, public figures, politicians, academics, former army generals, well-known intellectuals, who together with a similar group of Palestinians have been working hard for about two years without any publicity, which is a miracle, on a rather ambitious project, drafting a model peace agreement between Israel and Palestine. Last month, our work was accomplished and publicized under the title The Geneva Accords. Geneva not because all of it happened in Geneva, but because the Swiss government magnanimously supported and subsidized this very private enterprise. What is perhaps unique about this document, the Geneva Accord, which you can now read in English on your websites, or in Hebrew, or in Arabic. It's a 50-page document. What is unique about it is that for the first time, for the first time in the history of the Israeli-Arab conflict, all the issues were addressed, including the most explosive ones, Jerusalem, Settlements, 1948 Palestinian refugees, uh, international borders between Israel and Palestine, final status, the disputed holy places, end of conflict, renunciation of all further claims, and so on and so forth. I will give you more details about each of these subjects if you want me to in the question and answer period. I didn't come here to sort of spill out the whole document which is, as I say, available. What is significant about this particular Israeli-Palestinian enterprise is the following. No more so-called creative ambiguity. The big Dangerous idea of so many politicians and heads of states and negotiators who dealt with the Middle East in the past. Creative ambiguity leave things in a certain fog. I think, personally, creative ambiguity has been one of the sources of trouble because it generated mistrust on both sides. Both Israeli doves and Palestinian moderates suspected that when we get down to the difficult, prosaic details, there will come a big bang anyway, and therefore, why pronounce concessions? Why make concessions if there is no chance that we can agree on the minute, diabolical details of it? Not this time. We have looked the devil in the eye if it's true that the devil lies in the details we dealt with every last detail. The document was drafted by lawyers, by experts on international law, by people who are great authorities on both sides on the disputed holy places, by strategists, by military men from both sides, by economists. The idea was not to leave black holes for the future. Unlike Oslo, which left all the explosive issues, including the radioactive core of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, for some better future, avoiding the issue of the refugees or the right of return, avoiding the future of Jerusalem, avoiding the final status, avoiding drawing the final borders between Israel and Palestine, avoiding the future of the settlements, avoiding almost everything. Unlike Oslo, unlike Camp David 2000, where they did try to touch some of those time devices and immediately the whole thing went out in flames, this time everything has been dealt with and dealt with in a way which means very painful compromise, painful to both sides painful to the point of clenched teeth, clenched teeth between the partners in negotiation, highly emotional moments of anger and frustration and hate and disappointment and laughter and intimacy. There is a kind of intimacy between Israelis and Palestinians which does not normally exist between enemies we have been handcuffed to one another for more than 30 years now. Now, you know, if a jailer and the prisoner are handcuffed for a couple of hours for the sake of some procedure, this is normal. The prisoner goes back to jail, the jailer goes go back home to his family, and they forget about each other. But if a jailer and the, and the prisoner are handcuffed to one another for 35 years the way we Israelis and them Palestinians are handcuffed, there is no difference any longer. No one is free. The jailer is no freer than the prisoner in such a situation. Of course, the response was furious. Even before people read the documents, we were pronounced traitors, both in Israel and in Palestine. I say we and I mean the uh, guilty participants of the Geneva process the response was disbelief. The response was, in the best of cases, a fear, hence we might be disappointed once again. The response was playing the whole thing down. All right, it's a nice academic exercise. It's very beautiful that some unofficial Israelis and some unofficial Palestinians produce a nice unofficial paper But where does it take us? Well, I'll tell you where it is taking us already, now, not in the future. It is shaking and challenging the long-standing convention that there is no one to talk to on the other side. It is shaking the standing convention that even if we can agree on the general principles of two states and mutual recognition, we shall not be able to agree on the bleeding issues of refugees, Jerusalem, holy places, settlements. It is shaking the atmosphere of despair and hopelessness. We are not in a position to open the door for peace. Only the governments can open the door for peace. The duly democratically elected governments, and we would not have dreamt of taking their places. At least not in the, in Israel, where the government, the beloved government, is democratically elected. No one can challenge that. But it's not for us, Israeli negotiators or Palestinian negotiators in the Geneva, Enterprise to take the place of Sharon and Arafat. We cannot open the door. But we did open a window. A window which suddenly overlooks very different vistas. No exploding buses, no burning restaurants, no roadblocks, no house-to-house searches in miserable refugee camps, no det- detentions and arrests and killings. We opened a window for a new vista, hoping to generate a certain movement in the public opinion on both sides. In the next few days, the Geneva Accords will be duplicated, reprinted, and distributed into every last mailbox, family mailbox, in Israel and in Palestine, so that everyone can read it. Everyone can see the maps. Everyone will have an abbreviated, simplified one-page version and the full 50-page legalistic document. So everyone can decide for himself or herself. This is what I was talking about when I spoke about the need to inject hope as an antidote to spreading fanaticism and despair. I have always maintained, my friends, that the Israeli Palestinian conflict is a tragedy in the precise ancient meaning of the term tragedy. A clash between right and right. A clash between one very powerful claim and another claim, very different but no less powerful, no less genuine, and no less convincing. It is a clash between two peoples, two nations, who essentially have nowhere else to go. The Palestinians are in Palestine because Palestine is the homeland and the only homeland of the Palestinian people, in the same way in which Holland is the homeland of the Dutch or Sweden, the homeland of the Swedes. The Israeli Jews are in Israel because there is no other country in the world, which the Jews as a people, as a nation, could ever call home. As individuals, yes, probably, maybe, but not as a people, not as a nation. The Palestinians, by the way, have tried unwillingly, they were forced to try, to live in other Arab countries after losing their homes and fields and villages in 1948. They have tried. They were rejected, sometimes even humiliated and persecuted by the so-called Arab family. They were made aware in the most painful way of their Palestinianness. They were not wanted as Lebanese. They were not wanted as Syrians or Egyptians or Iraqis. They had to learn the hard way that they are Palestinians and that the only country which they can call Home to and can hold to is Israel, is Palestine. In a strange way, the Jewish people have had a somewhat parallel historical experience. The Jews were kicked out of Europe. My own parents. They were devoted Europeans. My parents, my grandparents. They were Europeans in the deepest sense of the word. They loved Europe, not any particular country in Europe. They loved the landscape, they loved the history, they loved the architecture, they loved the music, oh, they adored the music. They loved the literature. Only trouble, they were Europeans at a time when no one else in the whole of Europe was a European. Everyone was pan-Slavic or pan-Germanic or just a Bulgarian patriot. The only Europeans in Europe 70 or 80 years ago were my parents and my grandparents. (laughs) For which they were labeled cosmopolitans, parasites, intellectuals. By the way, three pejoratives which were every bit as current and popular in the Nazi vocabulary as they were in the communist Bolshevik vocabulary. Parasites, cosmopolitans, intellectuals, my parents. They were kicked out of Europe, fortunately for them, because if Europe would not have kicked them out, it would have killed them. They were not the people who drowned with the Titanic. They were the people who were rudely thrown off the board of the Titanic while the party was still going on and the music and the dancing and the food and the ball. They never recovered from this injury. When they were young people, the whole of Europe was covered with graffitis Jews go to Palestine. Fifty, sixty years later, the same walls carry the graffitis Jews out of Palestine. They were made to understand the hard way that they are not wanted anywhere else. Hence Israel. Now this is precisely the definition of a tragedy. I mean, the solution is fairly simple, so simple that I'm almost ashamed to have to recite it, but I will recite it again and again and again until I finally become a former peace activist and can spend my entire time writing my novels or arguing with the next Israeli and what is Israeliness and what is the meaning of Jewishness, which is my hobby. Um, It's simple. Think of a land which is, despite the huge fuss it's making about about itself, no bigger than the state of New Jersey. This land is populated right now by over 4 million Palestinians, Palestinian Arabs, and by 5.5 million Jews. The Palestinians are not going anywhere else because they don't have any other place to go to. The Israeli Jews are not going away either because they don't have other place to go. They cannot share the land and become one happy family because they are not one and certainly not happy, and because they are not even one family, there are two separate families. They cannot share the land, they have to divide it, roughly according to demographic realities. Roughly. This is called a two state solution. And I believe in English this this arrangement is called a two-family unit, a semi-detached house. Now, many peace groups, especially in Europe but also in America, peace-loving organizations, keep sending me and my colleagues wonderful invitations to spend a rosy weekend in a delightful resort with our Palestinian partners, colleagues, counterparts, so that we all learn to know one another, we learn to like one another, we drink a cup of coffee together, we realize that no one has horns and tails, and the trouble will go away. This is based on a widespread sentimental European and North American idea that every conflict is essentially no more than a misunderstanding. A little group therapy, a touch of family counseling, and everything will Everyone will live happily ever after. Well, I've got some sad news for you. Certain conflicts are very real. They are much worse than just misunderstandings. And I've got some sensational news for you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm afraid there is no essential misunderstanding between Israeli, Jew, and Palestinian Arabs. The Palestinians want the land they call Palestine. They claim it to themselves. They claim all of it. They have fairly strong reasons to do so. The Israeli Jews claim the same land and they have powerful reasons to claim it, which provides for a perfect understanding and for a terrible tragedy. Rivers of coffee drunk together cannot extinguish the tragedy of two nations claiming the same land. Coffee together is wonderful, especially Arabic coffee. Israeli coffee is not that wonderful yet. We are are working on it. But coffee together is no substitute to what we really need, what we painfully need, what we urgently need, namely a pragmatic compromise. I know the word compromise has a dreadful reputation in idealistic circles in this country and elsewhere, especially among the young. Compromise is dishonesty. Compromise is lack of integrity. Compromise is opportunism. Compromise is sneaky and shady. Not in my vocabulary, my friends. In my vocabulary, the word compromise is synonymous with the word life Where there is life, there are compromises. And the opposite of compromise is not idealism, and the opposite of compromise is not integrity or devotion. The opposite of compromise is fanaticism and death. See under departments of comparative fanaticism. Yes, I I do know one or two things about compromises having been married to the same woman for almost 44 years now. But I also know one or two things about fanaticism coming from Jerusalem, being born and raised in Jerusalem. I'm going to speak to you tonight about the nature of the compromise, but I want to tell you right at the outset that this compromise is going to hurt like hell because both people love the country. Because both people, Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs, have deep, different, but deep historical emotional ties to the country. One of the components of this tragedy, one of the aspects which have a certain irony about them, is the fact that many Israeli Jews don't recognize the depth of the Palestinian emotional connection to the land while many palestinians fail to recognize just how deep the jewish connection to the same land is however the realization of the depth of the root comes in a painful way and as a painful process for both nations it is going to be paved with shattered dreams and broken illusions and injured hopes and blown up slogans from the path the past on both sides One of the things which make the Israeli-Palestinian conflict particularly bitter is the fact that the Israeli-Palestinian or perhaps the entire Israeli-Arab conflict is essentially a conflict between two victims, two victims of the same oppressor, Europe, which colonized the Arab world, exploited it, humiliated it, trampled upon its culture, controlled it and used it as an imperialistic playground, is the same Europe which discriminated against the Jews, persecuted them, halted them, and finally mass murdered them on an unprecedented genocide crime. Now you would have thought, perhaps, that two victims, immediately two victims of the same oppressor, immediately develop between themselves a sense of solidarity. And so it is inside the poems of Bertolt Brecht, for example. In his poetry, various victims immediately unite, develop a sense of solidarity between them, become brothers, and they march together to the barricades, chanting the songs of Bertolt Brecht. But in real life, as I think many of you probably know from your own experience... In real life, some of the worst conflicts are precisely the conflicts between two victims of the same oppressor. Two children of the same cruel parent do not necessarily love one another. Very often they see in each other the exact image of the cruel parent. I'm going to tell you in a minute that this is precisely the case between Jew and Arab, not just between Israeli and Palestinian. But between Jew and Arab. Each one of the parties looks at the other and sees in the other the image of their past oppressors. Very often, as I read it in much of the contemporary Arabic literature, which I can only read in translation, unfortunately, but in much of it, I have to immediately make a reservation. I, I said I only read it in translation. In much of the Arabic literature, the Jew, especially the Israeli Jew, is pictured as an extension of the white, arrogant, sophisticated, tyrannizing, colonizing, cruel, heartless Europe of the past. These are, again, the colonialists who came to the Middle East once again, this time disguised as Zionists, but they came to tyrannize, to colonize, and to exploit These are the same people, we know them. Very often Arabs, even some sensitive Arab writers, fail to see us Israeli Jews as what we Israeli Jews really are. A bunch of half-hysterical refugees and survivors, haunted by dreadful nightmares, traumatized not only by Europe, but also by the way they were treated in Arabic and Islamic countries as well. Half the population of Israel are people who were kicked out of the Arabic and Islamic countries, forcefully, dramatically kicked out. Israel is indeed one large Jewish refugee camp. Half of us are actually Jewish refugees, as I said, from the Arab countries. But the way the Arabs see us, they see us as an extension or a reincarnation of their past oppressors. By the same token, we Israeli Jews very often don't see the Arabs, particularly the Palestinians, as what they really are. Are victims of centuries of oppression, exploitation, colonialism and humiliation. No, we see them as a bunch of pogrom makers and Nazis who just wrap themselves in kafias and grow moustaches and get suntaned but they are at the same old game of cutting the throat of the Jews for fun. In short, they are our past oppressors all over again. In this respect, there is a deep ignorance on both sides, not political ignorance about the purposes and the goals of the national movements, but emotional ignorance about how injured both sides are. Moreover, what makes the whole thing so complicated to grasp for a sympathetic outside viewer, and I mean sympathetic to both sides, is the fact that what we actually get in, in Israel slash Palestine are two wars for the price of ten, but two wars, not one. There is the Palestinian War for national liberation. They want to be liberated. They want nationhood self-determination, same as every other nation under the sun. And they deserve it. And this battle is essentially right, although it is sometimes fought by wrong and immoral and murderous means. But at the same time, there is another shady Palestinian war aimed at denying exactly the same from the Israeli Jews. Nationhood, self-determination, independence, and sovereignty. There is a Palestinian battle for self-liberation, and there is a Palestinian battle for suppression or expulsion of the Jews. Israel, too, is engaged in two wars, one of them just and one of them wrong. There is Israel's right and just war, although sometimes fought in wrong and immoral means, but right and just war for existence for self-defense, for the right to live as a free nation under the sun. But there is also a shady Israeli war for greater Israel, for annexation, for building settlements in the occupied territories, for taking other people's land. Not always easy to draw the line. There is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde on both sides, which makes it very, very confusing and sends many people including good people in this country to take simplistic black and white attitudes this to me infuriating need to decide right away who are the good guys, who are the bad guys support the good guys hate the bad guys and go to sleep the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not about a good guys and bad guys it's a clash between right and right and recently Very often, a clash between wrong and wrong. But it's not black and white. And anyone who thinks that this can be decreed upon in the same simple mindedness and directness as the war in Vietnam or apartheid in South Africa is wrong. This is not black and white. I personally do not believe in a sudden burst of mutual love between Israel and Palestine. I don't expect that once some miraculous, miraculous formula is found, the two antagonists will suddenly hug one and one another in tears, as in a Dostoevsky and scene of long, long long lost brothers. Oh my brother, will you ever forgive me? How could I be so terrible? Take the land, who cares about the land, just give me your love. Unfortunately, none of that is going to happen. I don't expect a honeymoon either. If anything, I expect a fair and just, if painful, divorce between Israel and Palestine. And divorces are never happy, even when they happen to be more or less just, or just about just. They still hurt, they still are painful. Especially this particular divorce, which is destined to be a very funny one because the two divorcing parties are most definitely staying in the same house. No one is moving out. And because they cannot live together, they'll have to erect a partition and decides who gets bedroom A and who gets bedroom B and what about the living room and the apartment being particularly small. Spatial arrangements will have to be made about kitchen and bathroom very hard, but much, much preferable to the existing living hell which the Israeli occupation is giving the Palestinians and the Palestinian terrorism is giving the Israelis. My own guess is that once this painful partition solution is implemented, once Israel and Palestine become two neighboring states once there is an Israeli embassy in Palestine and the Palestinian embassy in Israel which will probably be no more than four or five or six miles away from each other in the two parts of Jerusalem in the two different capital cities within screaming distance from one embassy from the Israeli embassy in Palestine to the Palestinian embassy in Israel once this is installed we Israelis and Palestinians will be fairly quick to Hop over the partition, yes, for a cup of coffee together. Pretty soon we shall be in a position to laugh at our past stupidities. Pretty soon we should even start cooking our meals together in the small kitchen, by which I mean shared economy, common currency, Middle Eastern common market. I don't know how long this will take. It's dangerous to give prophecies and predictions coming from the land of the prophets. There is too much competition in the business. (laughs) But I will risk a prediction. This will take us peoples of the Middle East much less time, many fewer centuries than it had taken Europe. We will be quicker to establish a Middle Eastern common market a Middle Eastern citizenship, a Middle Eastern identity, and we will spill less blood than Europe and less hatred and less atrocities. So while many Europeans are wagging their fingers at us, Israelis and Palestinians, let us not forget their record. From time to time it's not bad to remember that savagery is not a Middle Eastern invention and fanaticism, and cruelty, and fundamentalism. Anyway... I have some good news for you, because you all get the bad news all the time in your media, in your press, in the newspapers, in television. If I take things a step away from the world of the CNN, or for that matter, even away from the planet of the New York Times, they are not one and the same, but they are planets. If I take them back home, I'll tell you the following. The vast majority of the Israeli Jews and the vast majority of the Palestinian Arabs are unhappily ready now for a two-state solution. Public opinion surveys and polls which are taken every week in Israel and in Palestine show week after week that the majority and a considerable majority both among the Israeli Jews and among the Palestinian Arabs are unhappily ready to accept a two-state solution. They immediately add we don't trust them. They will never agree. They will cheat. It will never happen because you know them. And this you hear on both sides. But this is a great improvement. You know, I'm, I'm an old man. Being an Israeli of my, same, my age is the equivalent of being an American who is 245 years ago. <laughs> Treat me with respect. You are facing a sage here. <laughs> I am older than my country. I knew personally the George Washingtons and Abraham Lincolns of Israel. Every single person whose image is on our money bills, I knew personally how many Americans can claim the same. (laughs) So as a sage, I am telling you, sagely, that the worst patch of this conflict is already behind us. The worst patch, by the worst patch, I mean those decades, generations really. When the two parties completely ignored, refused to recognize the very existence of the other. When Palestinians and other Arabs failed to even pronounce the word Israel and used all kinds of euphemisms such as the Zionist entity. maintained that Israel was no more than a passing infection. If they scratch it hard enough, it will somehow disappear. Or a mobile exhibition that could be simply moved elsewhere. No longer. Most of them know now that Israel is indeed terrible and unjust and shouldn't have been there, but it is there to stay. By the same token, for generations, for decades, the vast majority of the Israelis refused to even recognize the existence of a Palestinian nation. They resorted to euphemisms such as the local Arabs or the non-Jewish inhabitants of the land of Israel. They pretended that the entire Palestinian issue is no more than a vicious invention of a pan-Arabic propaganda machine aimed at embarrassing Israel. No longer. Even those Israelis who are infuriated by the fact that there is a Palestinian nation, they know it now. They know it. It's a good beginning. It's more than a beginning. With clenched teeth, the parties are realizing that the other is not going to go away. The long-standing cognitive block is gone. The enemies lock eyes. It's not a happy moment, let me tell you from personal experience. It hurts like hell. You have to re-examine everything. Your most fundamental convictions. You have to re-examine things that you have inherited with your mother's milk or your grandmother's bedtime stories. You have to re-examine entire sets of values. You have to re-examine the sacrifices of former generations, and this is true of both sides. But this is happening. If I had to describe the present situation in a nutshell, I would say the following. The patient, and saying patient, I mean both Israelis and Palestinians. The patient is unhappily ready for the surgery, The doctors are cowards. I was asked a few weeks ago, while in Italy on a book tour, by an interviewer, if I supported the idea of expelling Arafat from Palestine. I said, yes, I wish he would be expelled, but by his own people, and by the same token, I wish Mr. Sharon will be expelled by us Israelis. (laughs) And they... The Italian interviewer uh, was quick to ask me if I could arrange for Mr. Berlusconi to join them wherever they go. (laughs) Now, there is, in my view, more urgent than the issue of the disputed holy places. More urgent even than the issue of the settlements. More urgent than the status, the issue of the final borders and the renunciation of further claims. More urgent and more burning is the question of the Palestinian refugees of 1948. As an Israeli, I refuse to take exclusive blame for their tragedy. I think the Palestinian leadership and the other Arab governments are at least as responsible as Israel for their plight, their initial plight and their lasting plight, perhaps even more responsible than Israel. But this is besides the point. The point is that hundreds and thousands of, of thousands of people are rotting in camps and have been rotting in camps for over 45 years without a glimmer of hope for the future. In dehumanizing conditions. Without jobs, without homes, without identity, without tomorrow. The question whose fault it is fades, or almost fades. Suppose I decided to put 150% of the blame on the Palestinian leaderships of 1948. So what? Their plight is our problem, whether we like it or not. As long as hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees are rotting in those camps, Israel will have no security. Peace agreement or no peace agreement? Embassies or no embassies? Their plight is our national security problem. If I were negotiating on behalf of Israel, as I did in this model peace agreement with my colleagues, I would make the solution of the refugee problem the prime Israeli requirement for peace, not just for moral or altruistic reasons, but for selfish reasons of national interest and national defense of Israel. I would say I don't believe any peace which does not address in a comprehensive way their plight. Now, their plight cannot be resolved by Israel receiving them in huge numbers or even in great numbers. I always believed in a two-state solution, but I never maintained a two-Palestinian state solution. Not that. The Palestinian refugees, as the issue is addressed in the Geneva Accord, the Palestinian refugees are not going to return to Israel. The right of return is never once mentioned in the Geneva Accords, not even the word return, which is the greatest Palestinian concession in this deal. Our greatest Palestinian concession is the recognition of partial Palestinian sovereignty over the Mount of Temple. Hurts like hell for both for them to renounce the right of return, for us to renounce the sovereignty over the Mount of Temple. But this is the the key trade-off of this uh, model agreement. Palestinian refugees will either be resettled in the countries where they live now, or they will immigrate and be resettled with massive international and Israeli help in the state of Palestine. Third option, some of them will be resettled by areas of Israel, turned over to the Palestinians in swap for Palestinian territories, which will become Israel, because the bargain entails a swap of territories so as to enable about more than half of the settlers, the Jewish settlers, on the fringes of the West Bank and in Greater Jerusalem, to become legitimate part of the state of Israel, swap of lands. Fourth option for the Palestinian refugees is to be absorbed in third countries. Fifth option, some of them, for humanitarian reasons, will be allowed to settle in Israel, not to return, but to settle in Israel under the sovereign discretion of the government of Israel. And the key notion is the numbers. Israel will absorb a number which will be the average of the number of Palestinian refugees absorbed by third countries. So if Canada decides to take in 60,000 and Norway 3,000, Israel will absorb something which is somewhere in between, namely 30, 35, 40,000, which is manageable, mostly on humanitarian grounds, reuniting families and so on. This, I think, contains... The fact that the refugee camps will be wiped off the face of the earth, that the refugee status will be cancelled, that every last Palestinian refugee will have a job, a home, and an ID, a passport, a nationality. The UN Agency for Refugee Relief will be closed down. This, I think, is one of the most important components of these model agreements and for me one of the crucial and prime preconditions for supporting such an arrangement let me conclude by telling you that some issues will after all remain unresolved for a very long time especially the emotional issues especially issues such as whose fault, especially such issues as whose historical rights and memories overrule the historical rights and memories of the other. There is no way and perhaps no need to solve them. There is no way and no need for the Israelis and the Palestinians to agree about the past. We can remain divided for a very long time about the past. We need to agree, and we have agreed, on the present and on the future. Open-ended situations are part of the human condition. It's my grandmother's wisdom, my beloved grandmother, who taught me when I was a kid of four or five or six, in very simple words, she explained to me the difference not between Jew and Arab, but between Jew and Christian. She said, you know, son, the Christians believe that the Messiah has been here once and he will come again one day. The Jews believe that the Messiah is still to come. Over this, said my grandmother, you cannot imagine how much anger and hatred and persecution and whatnot. Why, she said, why can't everybody simply wait and see? (laughs) If, If, she said, if the Messiah comes saying, hello, it's nice to see you again, the Jews will have to concede. If, on the other hand, the Messiah comes saying, how do you do, it's very good to meet you, the entire Christian world will have to apologize to the Jews. Until then, leave and let live. Now, this pragmatic wisdom, this wisdom of compromise, this wisdom of realizing that you may agree on a million arrangements, you do not necessarily have to agree about emotions, is not a bad formula for either international conflicts or marriage troubles, both. Ultimately, having defined the conflict between Israeli, Jew, and Palestinian Arab as a tragedy, as a clash between right and right, I have maintained for many years, and I have repeated this many times, and I will repeat it for as long as I am not a former peace activist. Tragedies have two traditional conclusions, two traditional ways of being concluded. There is the Shakespearean way of concluding a tragedy. In the end of a tragedy by Shakespeare, the stage is littered with dead bodies and maybe justice of sorts prevails. But there is also the Chekhov tradition. In the conclusion of a Chekhov tragedy, everyone is disillusioned, embittered, heartbroken, disappointed, melancholy, but alive, <laughs> my colleagues in the Israeli peace movement and myself have been working for 35 years now, not for some make make love not war ideal not for some sentimental vision of universal love and everybody hugging everyone else not over a vision of long lost brothers falling on each other's necks in tears not over some kind of of faint vision of a universal unification, but on the pragmatic search for a Chekhovian conclusion for this terrible tragedy. Ladies and gentlemen, Chekhov was not only a wonderful, wonderful playwright and storyteller. He was also a good physician. I think we should all resolve from time to time to Dr. Chekhov's prescriptions. Thank you very much for... Thank you very much. Thank you. And I am ready now, as usual, to take questions or allegations or protestations or cries of anger, whichever come first. My only two requests. Speak loudly and speak briefly. Don't take example from my long presentation. Make short questions, please. Yes, sir. It's a microphone.
0: I was just reading the commentary magazine, an article by Sharansky in
1: November of this month. And his point was that uh, Israel, just like the United States, is trying to bring democracy to the Arab world. Are they fanatics? Yes, Sharansky suggests that Israel's mission So the is, United States. Israel and the United States are struggling to bring democracy to the Arab world. Well, I think I have sort of answered this by telling you that containing extremism, fanaticism, and fundamentalism can only be done by the moderates of the same society. I don't think you can transplant democracy by force. I think democracy has to be seductive. You have to seduce other cultures into democracy rather than impose them. Besides... There is a difference between America and Israel. I'm very critical of American policies both in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Critical and worried. Yet let's remember that America is not building new settlements in Afghanistan, American settlements in Afghanistan and Iraq, claiming that this is part of its ancestral land. Israel is, and I think it's very bad. Without necessarily saying that American policy in Iraq or in Afghanistan is good, Yes, please.
0: Yes, while you and your colleagues have been uh, formulating this document, of course, this barrier has been being put up in the West Bank, which has done so much to destroy the moderates that I think you quite correctly point out are the hope. I've watched those moderates be destroyed in Gaza. They're now being destroyed in the West Bank, reduced to subsistence level. Can you talk a little bit about the barrier, um, which is being built night and day at tremendous cost to Israel? may gobble up at least 40% of Palestinian land?
1: Barrier, walls, fences. It's very wrong to build a unilateral wall or unilateral fence, especially a unilateral fence which expropriates one-third of the West Bank. Once there is an Israeli-Palestinian agreed upon international border, it may well be necessary for Israel or for Palestine to erect an international agreed-upon fence to make the job of the fanatics who will try to erode the peace harder. The evil is not the fence. The evil is the location of the fence. In a peaceful coexistence, to slightly misquote Robert Frost, good fence makes good neighbors. It's a slight misquote because this is not exactly Robert Frost's initial intention. He was a bit tongue-in-cheek about the, the neighbors and the fences. But I do maintain that fences can be a very positive asset between neighbor and neighbor when there are certain shades of ambiguities or remains of bad intentions. On one condition, that these are not greedy fences, that these are not fences at the expense of your neighbor's land. That these fences are built or erected along agreed upon international borders. Yes, please. It's been uh, uh, demonstrated. Uh, I don't think I need it. Do I? Uh, it's been demonstrated with a few books already and also recently Uh, over the uh, radio that uh, Arafat is worth hundreds of millions of dollars spread all over the world in secret accounts and whatnot. Also, the books demonstrate that uh, uh, he's a dishonest uh, man and also a liar. Uh, How will we uh, be able to implement Maybe we won't. I don't know. He will not last forever. Well, you know, it's no secret that I have not voted for Mr. Sharon. It's no secret that if I were a Palestinian, I would definitely not vote for Mr. Arafat. He is not my hero. He has never been. I never treated myself or regarded myself as a Jane Fonda and Arafat as my Ho Chi Minh. None of that. He is indeed a bad guy and possibly, very possibly a corrupt guy. I will not comment at the moment about the uh, uh, degree of ethics on the side of my Prime Minister. But this is besides the point. Whether Arafat stays or goes, if he is re-elected by the Palestinian people, we'll have to do business with him, not because he is nice and good, but because he happens to be their choice. If Sharon is re-elected, the Palestinians will have to deal with Sharon, not because he is nice and good, but because he is re-elected. Personally, I would like to see them walk hand-in-hand in hand into the sunset like in bad American movies. <laughs> yes. Yes, please, over there in the end. Yes. Um, I've heard it said that the silence of the Geneva Accords on the issue of the, um, the right of return is the kind of hazy um, leaving open of of the future of the the possibilities that you were uh, disapproving of when you spoke earlier in in your talk, that people are seeing this as uh, something that allows the Palestinians to interpret it as the right of return is still possible. Can you comment on that? Will the Palestinians be able to interpret the document as if the return or the right of return is still possible I simply recommend that you read the document you can find it on the website I have before endorsing it consulted with two of Israel's greatest experts on international law both of them, one of them a well known right wing hawk assured me that this door is closed, not slammed rudely I don't think it would have been right for us to demand that the Palestinians say, we forget about return, return was wrong, we no longer dream about return. They have the right to dream. But the actual clauses in the Geneva model, the actual clauses dealing with return, are focused around the sentence, first around the fact that the word return or right of return is not there, then the sentence That people who want to naturalize in Israel will do so at the sovereign discretion of the Israeli government. That's, in my unprofessional view, good enough. Yes, maybe we'll take someone from the middle of the road, not just from the extremes. Yes, please.
0: You refer to the fanatics, but for every fanatic on the heels of whatever is called Judea and Samaria, there is also people that are perceived as reasonable the bureaucracy that supports it, the soldiers that are protecting it. So, what are the means, besides sending the Geneva Accord uh, to homes of Israelis, to pressurize the Prime Minister or to make uh, the evacuation of settlement more popular or even feasible in the government or, or in? even the so-called Davish labor party that labeled you as traitors. Yeah. How do you do it? Would you support refusals of soldiers to serve in the occupied territory? What are the means to propagate those ideas that are wonderful?
1: Well, the Israeli Davish left is very divided over the issue of refusal to carry orders. I can only give you my own position with which I humbly agree. I say that it is the right and the duty of every so- Israeli soldier, every soldier, not just Israeli soldier, to refuse to carry out an order which is clearly illegal. It is the right and the duty of the state, of any state, to defend its citizens by legal means and by legal means alone. It is the right and the duty of the legislator and of the courts of justice to draw a very clear line between legal conducts and illegal conducts at times of war. I deliberately use the word legal and not ethical because if I said ethical, I would have to immediately admit that different people in Israel and elsewhere have different sets of values. I would say to my students, to my people, to my men when I was a, a junior commander in the reserves, I will say as long as the order is clearly not illegal or not clearly illegal, carry it out even with clenched teeth. Whether this order is to fight the Palestinians or this order is to evacuate existing Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Clench your teeth and carry it out. The moment the order is clearly illegal, It is not only your right, it is your duty to refuse to carry it out. Other Israeli doves will give you different answers. Yes, please. Is it possible for any of your Arab co-workers to give a semi-balanced talk like you have just done uh, before an Arab audience? Oh, they are doing it every night, including last night. In Tulkarem, in Jenin, in the refugee camps, and what? In Balata. In, in Balata, in the refugee camps, and some of them are being called traitors by their own people, and some of them are sticking out their names, their necks. I mean, think of a person such as a, a muhammad Horani. I'll give you a personal example, who is one of the commanders of Tanzim, a very militant Palestinian guerrilla organization, militant, violent. Secular organization. We haven't had any contact with the religious organizations of Hamas and Jihad. They don't talk to us. Uh, But this commander of Tanzim has been speaking for the last three weeks, each and every night, to Palestinian audiences, introducing the Geneva Accords and trying to win support. Campaigning for them, if you wish, launching a semi-public opinion battle in order to draw and mobilize Palestinian public opinion. It's harder for him than it is for me. I am being called terrible names in some places in Israel, not in Princeton. He risks more than just being called terrible names. Yes, there are our colleagues to this document who bravely are these days marketing the very same document Two, very untrusting and sometimes very angry and heartbroken Palestinian audience, yes. I'll take two more questions. Yes, sir. If, if somebody
0: lives in Princeton, would they work in New York? Would they be considered a citizen of- Oh, if somebody lives in Princeton and works in New York under the, your Geneva. uh, uh, set up there, would they be considered a resident of Princeton or a resident of New York?
1: Well, I'm not quite clear about the difference between the laws of the state of New Jersey and the laws of the state of New York, and I haven't heard of a war being raging between New York and New Jersey, but I don't know everything. There are things which I don't know. Let me tell you the following. Israel and Palestine will become two nations. Two nations. If Palestinians will come to work inside Israel, and they may come in considerable numbers, they will do so at the sovereign discretion of the Israeli and the Palestinian government and under a signed agreement between the two respective ministers of labor, not in the present condition where they are exploited, humiliated, dehumanized, and treated like potential terrorists, even if they are not. So, yes, there could be arrangements that people can reside in Palestine and work in Israel and vice versa, but these will be arrangements between two sovereign neighboring governments. One last question, yes, ma'am? Wait, wait for the microphone. If I can't hear you... I read that Colin Powell uh,
0: offered his blessing to the Geneva Accords. Does it mean that President Bush is
1: uh, behind it, or it's his own personal view? Well, I'm not here to speak for President Bush in any sense, <laughs> but whereas the State Department initially responded very cautiously, if not suspicious, suspecting, to the Geneva Accords, the last statement by uh, Colin Powell was very encouraging. In, on December 1st, in Geneva, uh, the drafters of those model peace agreements will convene, that's 20 days from now or so, will convene and kind of openly present those accords, those understandings to the world. I hear about many leading political figures, including former American chiefs, more than just one, who expressed interest in being there and endorsing the enterprise. I hear about former South African leaders, more than just one, two, who expressed interest in being there and endorsing those understandings. I hear of several European Acting government ministers and leaders who want to be there. How many of them will finally come, I don't know. But in the last analysis, what matters to me most is not so much the position of the State Department or the sympathy of Germany or the endorsement of France. We are struggling over the minds and souls of Israelis and Palestinians. And you know, I say we, and almost worse this we, comprehends many Israelis and many Palestinians. I say we struggle for the respective public opinions. This is new. This is new. This is something to cautiously celebrate. I am not suggesting that peace is is at our doorstep. I am not here to herald the coming of the Messiah or the, the ultimate solution or the beginning of the peace festivals. But I am saying that A window is open now and this window offers some hope. The best you can do, people, here, right now, any one of you, and your government, and your press, and your media, I'm answering a question you haven't asked. The best you can do right now is try to exercise as much empathy as you can to both sides because the surgery, the amputation, is going to be As painful as can be for both. You no longer have to choose between being pro-Israel and pro-Palestine. You can be pro-peace. What is the worst, what I regard as the worst attitude, both in America and in Europe, both among intellectuals and among officials, is the finger wagging. That's the last thing Israelis and Palestinians need at this painful moment in their respective histories. And making peace is painful, it's not a celebration. Let's get out of the usual sentimentality about the joys of peace, like the joys of sex. Peace is not like sex, except in some very violent, very, very violent uh, uh, manifestations, perhaps. It's going to hurt like hell, and we need, we need, we, we, Israelis and Palestinians, we need every ounce of empathy and understanding and tolerance and certain forgiveness and a lot of help from everyone who is willing to give it, rather than take sides and forever play the futile game of bad guys and good guys and finger-wagging in the manner of old-fashioned Victorian headmistress. Help us, give us, Israelis and Palestinians, as much empathy and help and understanding and support as you can. This can be the contribution of the outside world to the peace between Israel and Palestine. Thank you again, and I apologize. Thank you very much.